right, it's ready to time to sit down and get ready for Bible class. I don't think we have any any announcements tonight, do we? Nothing. Okay, we uh, unlike what we had anticipated, we are having Bible class tonight because that first hurricane just disappeared into thin air overnight. And the second one is apparently coming in sometime tomorrow night and is going to be very far from here on Thursday Thursday by noon, so it's not going to threaten Thursday night. So God arranged the timing so we wouldn't have to cancel class. So things are looking good. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way into the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study the Word, let God the Holy Spirit teach us uh, from the Word, and bring to our awareness the things that we need to put into application in our lives. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening to focus upon you, to focus upon your word, that we're told in scripture that all scripture is profitable for us. All scripture has been breathed out by you, and it is valuable for our spiritual growth, our spiritual life. And we know there are some passages we come to, and we're not sure just exactly how that applies, but... It all does. It's important to learn the whole counsel of your word. Thank you for what you've revealed to us in these passages about David's mighty men and what it says about you and your protection of each one of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're going to learn about how God protects us. And we're going through what seems like a boring section to some people, but you always have to think in terms of what I said in the prayer that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped and prepared for every good work. And when we think about Paul writing that when he said all scripture he wasn't talking about the New Testament because a lot of it or some of it had not yet been written and it was not organized yet into a collected canon a collected uh, book of the New Testament he was primarily talking about the Old Testament and when we get to those fun little genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 and some of the other places, it's important to realize that God wasn't just giving this as interesting information to the Israelites, but this is, has significance for all of us. 
And so the same is true when we get into some of these details that we have in Second Samuel. So we're going to see that the main thing that God is showing us here is how he protected David, and he protects us the same way. So just by way of review, in Second Samuel, we have three big sections. The first section, God blesses David. It's a positive section. It's not All this is not written in chronological order. Uh, part of it is, as David unites the kingdom, uh, he first rules in Hebron for seven years, and then he, the, all the tribes unite behind him, and he moves his uh, palace to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem, and that's in chapters 2 through 10. Then we see David's great sin with Bathsheba and all the consequences of it. And even though God disciplines David, David, because he gets back in fellowship and he's walking with the Lord, God is able to transform the cursing into blessing. And that's 2 Samuel 11 to 20. And then we have these, uh, actually this slide's wrong, seven appendices. Everybody says it's six, but I think the last part of chapter 20 is is part of this collection, so I add a seventh one, so we'll have to correct that slide. And in this last section, with these, see it's corrected here, seven appendices uh, that evidence the greatness of David's kingdom. So we look at the organization of the kingdom, the famine judgment, God protecting David in the section. first section we'll look at tonight, 2 Samuel 21, 15 to 22. Then David's praise for Yahweh for his faithful deliverance, which is 2 Samuel 22, which we've covered. And then David's last testament reflecting upon God's graciousness in giving him the Davidic covenant. That's in 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7. We covered that uh, last time. And then tonight we'll look at the other half of the protection uh, episodes where David is protected by his uh, 37 mighty men in Second Samuel 23, 8 to 39. And then next time we'll come back and look at the uh, David's confession. Now you may be asking, well, if we're going to finish Second Samuel next week after I don't know how many years, but 239 lessons, what will we do next? Well, in light of the realities of the world around us and everybody has enjoyed the times I have spent in the Psalms, there are some 72 Psalms that were written by David, and we have only covered a small number of those. I'm not going to go through all of the rest of them, but I thought I would pick another five or six to go through, uh, and then we will make plans for our next uh, book. And I think since we've been on the uh, Old Testament on Tuesday night that we're going the first time I've repeated a book study in m- many years but we're going to go to a timely book we're going to go back and I am going to reteach Judges because Judges is written for a time just like this the theme of Judges is that they rejected the authority of God There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the book of Judges is not a positive book. It shows the horrible underbelly of Israelite uh, failures and their failures to trust in God. And each generation became worse than the one before, and each leader became 
more pagan than the leader before until you come to the end. The first judge is good. Nothing bad is said about him. And the last judge is Samuel. Nothing good is said about him. Other than at the end, he after he's been blinded, he does call upon God to give him strength to tear down the te- temple of Dagon. And so there's a lot of lessons here for us to learn, especially li- when we're living in such a post-Christian uh, civilization and society. Now, when we look at the structure of this last sentence, last section, as I pointed out, we have a chiasm. A chiasm is when you have uh, a, an organization of material that is designed uh, along the pattern of A, and then at the end, the first section's an A section, the last section's an A, your A prime. It reflects and is similar to the first section. Then you have a second section uh, uh, called the B section, and then it's reflected in a a B prime section, and then you have your C section. You can have D, E, F, G. I've seen these things go out, 17 letters, 18 letters, where some people have have really drilled down. Uh, Chiasms were very uh, common in the Bible, and they're designed to emphasize the center of the narrative. And so that's what we see here in the center of this narrative. It's what comes between uh, the two uh, poems in 22 and then the beginning of 23. And that focuses on what God has done for David. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Now, as we've gone through the Psalms, and especially just just a couple of weeks ago when we looked at when we looked actually at chapter 22 which is identical almost to Psalm 18 we see how David writes about God's protection and he calls God uh, a rock calls him a fortress calls him a deliverer a huge rock that's usually strength, translated strength in that verse but it's the word for an enormous rock uh, escarpment, something like that. A shield, a horn of salvation. He is a rock. That's the first first word that's used in verse 2. All these terms indicate that God is our protection. We hide in God, our rock. And all these terms that we have going through the Psalms, fortress and defender, and we look at that verse we, I just mentioned in 2 Samuel twenty two fifty one. And we see this word salvation. God is a tower of salvation. And for many Christians, every time they see the word salvation, the first thing they think of is getting saved from the lake of fire. But in the Psalms, it is argued by people who have done the nitty-gritty studies that yesha, which is the word translated salvation, and is the root verb for the name Yeshua for Jesus because he would be the savior of their people, that it never means salvation from eternal punishment. It always means deliverance from some sort of problem, whether it is an external problem, people who are attacking you or are they're, they're giving, they have sins of the tongues and they're maligning you and running you down, or there's some sort of conspiracy. Often we see this with David talking about his enemies, and God delivers him. 
but it's also used of internal problems such as sickness or disease. And the same thing is true for the Greek word sozo that's translated salvation in the New Testament. In a number of places, it should be translated uh, have something to do with, with being healed uh, from some disease. And so we, we have to look at this a different way, and we ought to ask the question, how does God provide this, this deliverance? How does God provide, how is God a fortress for David? How is God a shield for David? How is God a fortress for David and a rock of refuge? Does he provide that directly and immediately? Is God always interfering directly in uh, David's life to protect him? Or is God acting through intermediate agents? Is God using other human beings... Or in the case of health, does God use uh, pharmaceuticals? Does God use surgeons? Does God use doctors in order to bring about the healing? See, some people have this very superficial view that when the Bible says God heals, that that always means that it's a direct miraculous healing. Now, in some cases it is. But in other cases, it's brought about through the use of medicinals and natural healing things. And that is true in this church age. We have um, many, we had people who had the gift of miracles and apostles could heal, Jesus healed, because that was something distinctive. And he wasn't healing by doing these things like leg lengthening, like Benny Hinn does and uh, Amy Simple McPherson did, and and many others that you just just uh, phony and bogus. Uh, in fact, there's a interesting video that I would encourage you to watch. It's called American Gospel. There's actually two of them. The first one is called American Gospel: Christ Alone. It's on Netflix, and if you've got Netflix, you can watch it for free. The second one is called American Gospel. Christ crucified, and it is dealing with uh, some other aspects of what's going on in the church today. What used to be identified or called the emergent church is now called the progressive church, and you know what I think of progressive, uh, progressing into the pit of hell, Uh, progressive politics, progressive uh, religion is all progressing away from the Bible. And um, and so that's looking at it. But there's a couple of things you ought to note if you watch either one of these films. First of all, the first film, the first film is, uh, th- it has two parts, basically. The first part, you have a number of Christian pastors, theologians, leaders who are saying something about the nature of saving faith, that it is in Christ alone. And they're saying it is not Christ plus works. Now, one of the things, if you have your little spiritual radar tuned correctly, that you should always pay attention to, you've heard me say this many years, you've heard other pastors say, faith alone in Christ alone. There's a reason that alone goes with faith and a second alone goes with Christ. 
And that is because there is, in a modern evangelicalism, there's it developed, and it really isn't new in the 20th century. It, it is ultimately built on elements that came out of Roman Catholicism, elements that were based on one form of the, of the understanding of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that you have in, in five-point Calvinism. Uh, you have five-point Calvinism goes by the acronym of TULIP. T is for total inability, that, and that's the idea that we're just born absolutely, totally dead. We're a corpse. We can't do anything. You can't exercise volition. You can't do anything. You're just a corpse. God has to regenerate you before he can make you alive. He only regenerates those who he has elected from eternity past, and those that he regenerated and elected will necessarily demonstrate that they are the elect by their good works, and they will persevere. So that what they're saying is if somebody trusts in Christ as their Savior and believes and God knows what you believe or what you don't believe, and believes that Christ died on the cross for their sins and that they are forgiven, that if two years later or two weeks later or two hours later they say, you know, I just bought a bag of goods and I've been fooled, and they never look back and never go anywhere in their Christian life, they're still saved. But see, in Lordship Salvation, you only know if you had real saving faith you only know if you have real saving faith if you have the right works to accompany it. So it basically turns turns everybody into fruit inspectors trying to figure out they've got the right kind of faith. And even um, probably one of the most the foremost popular teacher of this is uh, John MacArthur, who's really becoming our hero for another reason. That's his stand. Uh, in relationship to the state, can't tell the church what to do, whether to meet or not meet, or how to meet. And uh, so for that, we pray for him and we applaud him. But he has written a number of books, Gospel According to Jesus and the Gospel According to the Apostles, and uh, he's just wrong, just dead wrong. And and this comes out of that strong five-point Calvinism. So that's that's what you get when you say... You can say you believe in faith in Christ alone because you're not believing in Christ plus anything else. But faith alone means that it's only based on your faith. It's not based on faith and works that are evidence of your faith. It is based on the fact that God said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then I know I'm saved because that was God's promise. And I'm not basing it on what I see and any change in my life or anything else. And we study parts of this in our study on Ephesians on Sunday morning where we see that we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And the Calvinist says that means you're a corpse. And if you look at how Paul uses the language in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, he says that we've been alienated from the life of God. He doesn't say that we're a corpse. We, we just don't have that life that God gave uh, spiritually to Adam at the beginning, and that's that's been lost. Now, the reason I say all of that is in this film, m- most, if not all, of the people at the beginning that are defining the gospel, and unless you know the little buzzwords, you wouldn't pick up on the fact that most of them are lordship. 
Uh, even Mike Gendron, who usually goes to pre-trib and is a good guy, and he's got a whole ministry. He was reared Roman Catholic, and he has a whole ministry of evangelism to Catholics that when he interprets certain passages like James 2 and Hebrews 6 and some others, he, it's just a typical lordship interpretation. But what he says in this film is very, very good. And what some others say is very, very good. But sometimes you have to have a program and a scorecard to know who the players are. And there's several people in here. There's a guy named Matt Chandler, for one. And there's another guy, and his name escapes me right now. And he's the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And these guys are okay with what they say in this. But they also now, since then, I don't know when this was made, probably about 2016 or 17, but in that time period, they've become fully immersed into social justice and into the whole critical race theory thing. And we've been talking about this in our Friday morning meetings as pastors, and we've got a couple of guys uh, that have been uh, leading the discussion, one of whom is Tommy Ice's son, because another thing you pick up on is these guys who will say, They'll say, the Bible, all of the Bible, is about Jesus. Now, if I asked you if that's a true or false statement, most of you would say that's a true statement. But what do they mean by all? What they mean by all in this new hermeneutic that's come out of the Reformed camp is called a Christ-centered hermeneutic. And in a Christ-centered human hermeneutic, Every single verse of the Bible is about Jesus. That ultimately has to lead you into some sort of allegorization. And uh, David Ice went through the Master's Seminary, where MacArthur's president, and they had very good studies in hermeneutics and very good professors of hermeneutics, and they had to learn a lot about this Christ-centered hermeneutic and critique it. And so you, uh, several of these guys, when you listen to it, you will hear them say things. And one guy says, um, he's a seminary professor out on the West Coast, and he says, if you teach Revelation and it's all about the future and it's all about what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes and it's all about the uh, revived Roman Empire and all of these other things and it's not all about Jesus, then you haven't understood the book of Revelation. Now, my question is, as we go through some of these particular verses tonight, dealing with, um, for example, in Second uh, Samuel twenty-one fifteen, when the Philistines were at war again, again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. How do you make that about Jesus? But this Christ-centered hermeneutic wants to make everything about her, about Jesus. Now, the film is, is, is very good, and there's nothing that you're going to hear there where you're going to necessarily go, wow, that was terrible. Everything is pretty good. But if you know the buzzwords, if you know some of those things, you're and know a little bit about history, and see the other guy, uh, guy that we met at uh, when I went to Yad Vashem four years ago, uh, named Greg Allen, a pastor up in Pennsylvania. He's come out of a Southern Baptist background, and he knows all these guys. And the Southern Baptist Convention, whether you know it or not, is imploding. And it's imploding because last year they passed a Resolution 9 that basically makes critical race theory, and if you don't know what that is, well, you can look it up, critical race theory and 
cultural Marxism, all this other stuff, part of a, the Southern Baptist plank. Now, most people don't even know that. Most Baptists don't even know that. They weren't paying close enough attention. This got snuck, snuck in, and it's causing a huge thing. And so uh, he has been helping us all understand what's going on and how all these things going on, social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality, how all these different things are kind of merging together. And if you study church history, you know that in every generation, whatever is going on out in the world is being reflected inside the church. And so this is infecting. It's a horrible, horrible virus that is infecting the, the uh, body of Christ in America. But other than that, and I make it sound a lot worse than it is, you just need to be aware of, of a couple of those things. But the exposure, Benny Hinn's son uh, or nephew, uh, Kosi Hinn, and several others are involved in this, and they do an outstanding job uh, exposing what really goes on in the, with these faith healers. And that's about as much as I wanted to say on that. But that's that's important because we need to understand what's going on. And these faith healers just teach this concept that every time you see these words, that, that God's going to heal you. And that's that's just not true. But God is going to protect us. And that's what this is, this is ultimately uh, all about. And we know that God is um, not always going to heal us. And he doesn't always do it directly. God has given us a brain, and he's given us wisdom. He's given us knowledge. He's given us scientific knowledge. And he often uses, or more often than not, uses pharmaceuticals and doctors to accomplish healing rather than some sort of direct intervention, something something miraculous. And in the Scripture, we see things, for example, uh, in Philippians 2, 27 to 30, uh, Paul is talking about Epaphroditus, who was the messenger he sent with the epistle to the Philippians, and he sent Epaphroditus to take it to them, and he refers to the fact that uh, Epaphroditus had been very, very sick. And in verse 27 he says, For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So wait a minute, you mean Paul just didn't pull out his handkerchief, if you remember that story, and uh, drop it on Epaphroditus and heal him? No, he couldn't do it. These guys did not go around just healing everybody. There were specific times when they did it to demonstrate their credentials for the gospel. And so Epaphroditus is one case. Timothy was another case where First Timothy 5.23, uh, Paul told Timothy, no longer drink only water but use it as a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, that's a prescription for, for Timothy. It's not a prescription for everybody, okay? That was uh, his situation. So he doesn't heal him. Paul didn't heal Timothy from all of his in infirmities. And years ago, I taught through the doctrine of healing. I think it's up on the website. And at the end, I list all these faith healers, all these faith healers in, in um and, and including quite a few names that you're going to know from, uh, um, uh, let me see, uh, Dodie, uh, what's her name? Uh, who's the guy over here? At Osteen, yeah, Joel Osteen. Dodie Osteen had breast cancer. And, of course, nobody knows they get sick and they have cancer. And so she, uh, she went to... Uh, 
She didn't go to her husband for faith healing. She, she, she went over uh, to MD Anderson. And you have example, 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 these great faith healers. And instead of going to a doctor, I mean, instead of going to their husband or to one of their good friends who is a faith healer, they went to a doctor because that's how God, God works. And so we have to understand that, that God does not protect us directly. He doesn't intervene miraculously. He intervenes through intermediate means, and he does it also through, through guidance. And that's not a contradiction to faith. He gives us guidance through the knowledge that the culture accumulates around us. And that's true for, especially in times like this, in this pandemic, our times of a hurricane, we do everything we can to protect ourselves. And at some point, we just have to trust God. We can't do everything. We don't know where the viruses are. We just make sure that we take advantage of whatever protocols are recommended and then we have to leave it in God's hands. But we don't act foolishly and just say, well, I'm going to trust God like this pastor over in Louisiana did and just had everybody come into his church all the time, and then a lot of people got infected. So uh, we, we have to be careful how we handle these things. And so that's really the doctrine that we have here in these two sections is how God used David's mighty men uh, to protect him. And so the first set of examples are in chapter 21, verses 15 down to 22. So 15 to 22 is, um, is going to be eight verses that look at four different heroes. These are military heroes that were used by God to protect David's life. And so we have the adventures of Abishai, in 21:15 to 17, we have Sibekai the Hushathite in 21:18, and Elkanan in 21:19, and then Jonathan in 21:20 20 to 22. And then we're going to go to the second part, which is found in 2 Samuel 23, and this begins in 23:8 and goes through 23:39. Now that last section. That's the list of the 30. It's just a reading list. But it's so everybody's name gets in there uh, that's important. And we recognize some of the heroes or names that are familiar to us. And so we won't go through that line by line, precept upon precept, uh, phrase by phrase, and clause by clause. All right, we have the adventures of Abishai. Now we know who Abishai is. Abishai is Joab's brother. And they are the sons of Zariah. Zariah is David's sister, and so they are David's nephews. So that tells us that if these men are, are young, vibrant generals, then there's a good chance Abishai is younger than Joab, uh, uh, that, that at least Abishai is probably in his late 20s, and that would mean David is probably getting past 40. And it's typical of most athletes that once you get past your mid-30s, you just don't function as well as you did when you were 19 or 18 years of age as David was when he fought, fought Goliath and was fighting the Philistines in those battles back in 1 Samuel 17, 18, 19, uh, where we saw him. And so we're, the, there's an introduction to this section in verse 15. 
And we're told that when the Philistines were at war again with Israel. Now that word again uh, has several different meanings. And it doesn't necessarily mean they had had these major wars, this major war back during the time of Saul, and now there's a major war again. The word that is translated war here could easily simply be battles or skirmishes, which is probably what's going on here is that they have a border. There's the land of the Philistines uh, around Gath and Gezer and Ashdod, and then there's uh, Israel's land. And with that border, you often have problems with the hostile border with uh, things that, that flare up, and there's fighting that occurs around the border and so this isn't talking about full-blown uh, warfare. And we're going to see some other things that, that as you read through it, you have, like, for example, the first episode is with uh, Ishbi Binab, and then there's a uh, contrast with uh, 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 Abishai in verse 17, and then verse 18, now it happened afterward, and then verse 19, again there was a war, uh, and then 20, again, there was a war. If you translate, again, there's a skirmish, there's another skirmish, there's another skirmish. These aren't all happening uh, at the same time. And so they're, at, they're having these border flare-ups. And so David took his servants, that's his army, and he went down and they start engaging the enemy. And David grew faint. Now, that's one of the things we ought to pay attention to because we have this statement here in verse 15 that David grew faint. And then when you get to verse verse 17 and look there, Abishai has to come in and rescue David. David is, is fighting this, uh, this giant and David has to, um, uh, he has to come to David's aid and to kill the giant uh, for David, because David is getting worn out. So after that, we're going to see what happens. Uh, but that's going to be the last of David's involvement in going into uh, personal hand-to-hand combat. So as we look at this, we see the first the first uh, uh, hero here mentioned is Ishbi Binab, who was one of the sons of the giant. No, this isn't the first hero. This is the first uh, bad guy, the first Philistine. He's one of the sons of the giant. Now, if you read that in the New King James Version and some other translations, uh, you think that that's talking about Goliath. And that's conceivable. But what we have in the Hebrew text is the word rapha, and this is a name for a tribe. And you, you often see translated and written as the, when it's talking about some of them, it's talking about the Rephaim, the plural is put on there. And so there are many who now believe that what's going on here is not that these are Goliath's four sons, but that these are all descendants of the Rephaim. Okay, so we're going to have to understand who the Rephaim are. And what we see in... Uh, in these passages, for example, there's a, they're listed as part of the group of Canaanite tribes in Genesis 15:19 through 21. And so it lists this group. And you read in verse 20, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim. Okay, so that puts them as part of the Canaanites. also mentions the Kenites and Kenizzites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites. 
and the stalactites and stalagmites, but they're all there. Okay, so that's the first mention of the Rephaim. And we learn some more about them because they are regarded as giants. And they're related to a group, and this seems to be an interchangeable term, the Anakim. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them the Emim. Now remember, the Moabites lived on the other side of the Jordan, or the other side of the Dead Sea from, from Israel. And uh, there's a king of the Moabites, uh, uh, Og, who's the, or not, excuse me, he's not king of the Moabites, he's the king in Bashan. Bashan is where the, the Golan Heights are now. That's up across on the uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah? of the people of Ammon. That's modern uh, uh, Ammon um, in Jordan. Nine cubits is its length. So a cubit is a foot and a half. So we're talking about a 13 and a half foot long bed, four cubits wide, so it's six feet wide just to accommodate him. He just, it wasn't that he just liked a huge bed. Uh, he is he's huge he's enormous he's part of these these giants that were some sort of aberration uh, had an overactive pituitary gland something of that nature what happened to them well we're told when during the conquest that uh, Joshua fought the Anakim and it's all in this southern area all around in the tribe of Judah Hebron Devere the mountains of Judah, all of this area was where the Anakim did, and he, he uh, almost completely destroyed them or annihilated them, but some of them survived, and at the very end of verse 22 it says, they remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Where's Goliath from? Goliath from Gath. And so he is not a true Philistine. He is a descendant of the Anakim and, uh, that were left in, uh, in Israel. So we have this uh, initial situation here that Ishbi Binab is a descendant of the Raphaim. And he has a, uh, he's carrying a spear that weighs 300 shekels, which is about seven and a half pounds. And that's half the weight of Goliath's. And the other thing that we note about him is that he has a bronze spear, whereas Goliath had an iron spear. So Goliath was uh, bigger, had a heavier spear, and uh, it was iron, which is much more effective than, than bronze. But he's got a new kind of sword. And literally in the Hebrew, it just reads, he was armed with something new. Okay, so it's, it's translated as a new sword, but it doesn't really specify the weapon in the Hebrew. And so he's threatened to take revenge on David because David had killed Goliath, and he's going to be the one who's going to uh, kill David the giant slayer. And this is uh, not going to happen because he gets into a fight with David, and it is Abishai, his, David's nephew, that comes to his aid, and he strikes the Philistine and kills him. And this has a certain result. And the result is that the uh, men of David come to him and say, you can't get into battle anymore. 
you're too important. You're too valuable. We can't have uh, you risking your life in hand-to-hand combat anymore. And so they say, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So here we have a metaphor. They're calling David the lamp of Israel. So what does a lamp do? A lamp gives light in darkness. A lamp illuminates the path so you know where to go. So this is a metaphor for David's leadership, for his guidance, and leading the nation to prosperity and also to the fullness of the Hebrew word is shalom. It means more than peace. It means wholeness and health and prosperity, all of those things uh, that are involved with that. And uh, what would happen if David died, it would extinguish that lamp. And that is 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 a, also a metaphor used in Scripture for his death. There are some others that suggest some other things, but when you look at Job 18.6 and Proverbs 13.9, there's a use of this metaphor that when a, a man dies, his lamp is extinguished. So the we it reminds us of what John says about Jesus in John chapter 1, that he was he was the light of the world, and in him was life, and so there's that connection between life and light that we find in the in the scripture. Now, the second guy that's mentioned in this section is is Sivakai. in uh, verse eighteen. Now, it happened afterward that there's again a battle. So this is a second skirmish with the Philistines at Gob. Now, nobody's really sure where Gob is. Some people think it is a, another name for Gezer. Some people think it's a separate place. And there's some who've identified it with a, a site down in that area. But nobody really knows where it is. And Sibachai, the Hushathite, uh, killed this another one of the Raphaim, Saf, who was one of the sons of the giant or a descendant of the, the Rephaim, the giants. The third one is Elhanan. Now, this is where things get kind of dicey. Uh, verse uh, twenty-one, nineteen says, Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jaare Oregim, notice the first two letters in Oregim are O-R, the Bethlehemite. So Elhanan, the son of Jare, Oregim, the Bethlehemite, so he's from Bethlehem, killed, and then I didn't italicize him, but the brother of is not in the text. This is a corrupted text, and it makes it look like he killed Goliath the Gittite. A Gittite is someone from Gath, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam, and that is what how Goliath's uh, spear is identified back in uh, 1 Samuel 17. Now, at the parallel passage over in First Chronicles 20, verse 5, we read, And again there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair. Now, this is a different son of, so it's either a different Elhanan. And he kills Lami, the brother of Goliath. So if it's the same Elhanan, then he is killing Um, the brother of Goliath, which is why in many versions they translate it as killed the brother of Goliath to solve the conflict there. Uh, There are lots of different versions here. Some people say that Elhanan was another name for David. 
some people say that uh, uh, that here it's the brother of Goliath, and then over in First Samuel it's Goliath. But it, there's too much of a similarity there. I think the best thing is that they're just uh, the the text of of Samuel has more textual issues than any other text of Scripture. And this was something that was probably just just corrupted along the way. And it's probably best to understand it as it's usually translated that he Elhanan killed uh, the brother of Goliath, uh, the, the Gittite. Now, the fourth person is Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, this is not Jonathan, the son of Saul. This is a different Jonathan. So there, many of these names are common. There's even possibility, some people have said on the other problem, that there are two Goliaths, but... That seems a little odd that you would have two Elhanans and two Goliaths, and uh, but that's not not something totally uh, totally impossible. And so here he has a fight with um, uh, a man who has great stature, another giant, uh, and he has six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 24 in number, so he could count higher than most people. And he also was born to the Rapha, the, 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 the Raphaim. So when he, that is when uh, this six-fingered, six-toed guy defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, so Jonathan's another nephew, uh, Jonathan killed him. These four were born to the giant, born to the Rapha, the Raphaim, and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of, of, of the servants. Interesting thing about this guy who's got six fingers, you would think that having six fingers and on each hand, six toes, that that would give you more balance and that would give you greater grip on your weapon and you would be a greater warrior. But actually there was a, a six-fingered, baseball pitcher named Antonio Alfonseca who uh, threw for the Chicago Cubs in the early 2000s. And he had this extra finger on his uh, pitching hand. Everybody thought that would give him greater control and greater spin on his pitchers, but it didn't really work out that well, and he had lots of problems, and and uh, he just wasn't very successful as a professional Pitcher. So there are times when people come along like that. Okay, let's flip over a couple of pages, and we're going to go to Second Samuel, uh, chapter twenty-three. Second Samuel, chapter twenty-three, and we're going to start down at verse eight. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Now, the word for mighty men is Gibor. It's interesting when you go to Israel today that uh, what they have on the uh, on the restroom doors for men is Gabor. And so it is no longer a word that refers to a mighty warrior. It is a word that just refers to men. But this is its root in biblical Hebrew, and it is a, from a root that is commonly associated in context with warfare and has to do with the strength and vitality of the successful warrior, according to Oswald in the theological word book of the Old Testament. It is a word that is applied to God in three significant passages. In Isaiah 10.21, 
Isaiah writes, or God is, uh, Isaiah writes, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the Gabor El, the mighty God. In Psalm 89.13, which we've studied, it is a meditation on the impact of the Davidic covenant and using that as a basis for prayer to God to intervene. Uh, You have a mighty arm, the psalmist writes, talking about God's omnipotence, and there it's the word gibor. And then in Isaiah 9.6, a well-known passage, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father should be translated Father of Eternity, meaning he is eternal. And Mighty God is, again, Gabor El. So he is omnipotent. So the omnipotent God is the one who provides these mighty warriors for David to protect him in battle. And God provides all kinds of things for us. He provides friends with wisdom and can give us wise counsel. He provides uh, family members and others who can intervene and protect us in one way or another. And he provides police. He provides all kinds of different things that to protect us. So uh, he is ultimately the one behind it. Now, there, in this list, this is a great list, extolling the virtues of their valor. These were David's great troops, and, and many of them uh, close friends. So we read here, when you read it, if you sit down and you try to read through this, it is confusing. If anybody tries to do it, you know what I mean about the fact that this is confusing. It starts off, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. And it lists one in verse 8, it lists Eleazar in verse 9, and it lists um, uh, 11, you have uh, Shammah. And so the, then in verse 13 it says, then three of the 30 chief men. So the 30 chief men are different from these three. And so uh, it's difficult to count up the number of these men. It's difficult to see how they all relate. And I tried to break this down so it makes a little more sense. And that there are three at the very beginning who are mentioned as the greatest of the chieftains of David. And they are the ones who, in essence, would have gotten the Medal of Honor for Valor. They are Yoshev, Bashabath. Eleazar and Shammah in verses uh, 8 through 12. And there's another group called the 30. It isn't clear how the first three relate to the 30, but some among the 30 don't measure up to the three. And then there are three men of the 30 who received the second highest medal of valor. These are the ones who went to the well of Bethlehem in the midst of the Philistine army to get water for David. He didn't ask them to. They just heard him uh, talk and say, boy, I'd sure like a drink of water from the hometown well. And so they they decided to go get it. But Bethlehem at that time was a uh, an encampment. It had been taken over by the Philistine army, and so they had to uh, covertly sneak into Bethlehem 
and then they had to lower the uh, sacks to get the water and then to carry all that water. Water's heavy. Water weighs about eight pounds a gallon. And then they had to carry all of that back uh, to to the uh, to David, and then we'll see what David does to it. It's just just remarkable and shows what a man of integrity he he was. And then there's two more mentioned: Abishai and Benaiah. And later, Abishai became a, a general. In fact, at one time, he's put over all the armies of Israel. He's Joab's brother. And then there's Benaiah, who became the head of David's bodyguard. So the first guy, Yoshev. Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captives. And so we're introduced to him, chief among the captains. That means he's put over the heads of all the regiments. And he's also given a nickname, Adino the Esnite. Not sure what that means, because he had killed 800 men at one time. Now, the interesting thing about that is the way they translated that into the English is that this word uh, doesn't necessarily mean in one encounter like it sounds. That same phrase is used in Joshua 10.42, where it describes a prolonged campaign of Joshua's to conquer the promised land. And so it refers there to many different battles, something that is spread out over time, but it's a unified whole and so he had been was responsible as a great warrior for killing over 800 of the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. And so that was a remarkable thing. But another thing that we see as we look at these mighty men is how they are divided. They, uh, David is going to divide them into uh, three units. Uh, there's going to be about four to 600 per regiment, according to... Um, uh, Elias Mazar, who is a one of the foremost experts on the temple, for example, and, and foremost uh, Israeli archaeologist, and uh, uh, work that he did on the wars of Israel and the military of Israel, and uh, this shows that David is is has a good handle on organization. There, uh, the, the army is divided into three units. Two of them would fight. And one unit would then stay back and guard the weapons. And that was, that was standard procedure. And there was a, an incident, I can't remember the name of the town now, uh, incident at the end of First Samuel, where David has set his, uh, David has gone off with the Philistines. And so the, um, um, what are the, 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 um, Ammonite, not not the Ammonites. The what's the other A group? The ones that Saul wouldn't wouldn't uh, kill, um, Amalekites. And so uh, David uh, goes off. While David's gone, the Amalekites raid the camp and they take all of the uh, women and other, and children captives. They don't kill anybody. And then David and his men have to go after them. And he divides them into three groups. Two go fight the Amalekites. One group is left behind. Now, what's interesting is that episode is used by socialists to talk about uh, that everybody should get paid the same thing. Because what happens when David comes back from the victory over the Amalekites is that the guys who went to fight the battle said, oh, no, we shouldn't split the spoils. We should get all the spoils. These guys didn't fight in the battle. 
And David said, well, they're just as much a part of the fight because they had to stay back and secure our 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 uh, supplies and everything else. And so they're just as important as everybody else. So we split uh, evenly with with them as well. And the point is that the the booty, the plunder was something in excess. It was a reward. It wasn't the payment for uh, for what they were doing. It was a reward that was uh, given. And David doesn't have to do anything with it. It, it is something that is uh, given graciously to all of his men. And so this is not an example of of uh, socialism. So this is. Uh, uh, this is important just because it, you, you have this thing at the end of that chapter. It says that this became an ordinance and a statute in Israel. What that's saying is that this became standard operating procedure in the military that you, you had three units. You had two that were active. We saw this in the, in the battle against uh, uh, Rabbah when Joab was in charge and David wasn't in the battle where you had two uh, armies, two battalions that were uh, engaged in the battle and, one, battle and one was held in reserve, uh, in reserve to guard the supply train or just held in reserve to come in if necessary. So that is the background for understanding uh, that particular language. And then uh, next you have Eleazar, the son of Dode, the Ahohite. So these are difficult names, and we're not sure exactly who he was, but they're being very specific in identifying him so that he gets the credit. And he was one of the three mighty men with David uh, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. So this is speaking of a particular case or situation where three of these mighty men had stood with David when... um, uh, when Israel had to go into retreat. And so Eleazar arose, attacked the Philistines, and he goes into battle. And I don't know if you've ever done anything, you've been working it, maybe you've been working in the garden or chopping wood or doing some physical activity, and you're using your hand over and over and over again, and then it just begins to cramp up and stiffen up, and you can hardly move it. Well, that's what's being described here. He fought so hard with his sword that his hand stuck to it. He couldn't relax his grip on the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only uh, to plunder. And then you have Shema uh, as the third one, the son of Agi, the Hararite. And after Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite, the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So this is in harvest time. And so the people fled from the Philistines. And so Shammah goes out by himself, and he stations himself right in the middle of the pasture that's full of lentils, and he uh, defended it, and he killed the Philistines, all of them. And so one man held off the entire force of the Philistines. Now what's interesting here, just to give you a map, all of this is taking place in, uh, uh uh-oh, Where's my mouse? Uh-oh. See, this is a brand new computer, first time out of the box, so we're, it's not going, I've gone in all four directions. There it goes. I saw it a minute ago. 
there. Oh well. If you look at the map, Bethlehem's in the lower lower right, just south of Jerusalem. That's about five miles, so that gives you an idea of the distance. And there's a green line going west from Bethlehem, and that takes you through the valley of Elah, and that's where David fought Goliath. And then that goes up through Azekah and over to Gath where Goliath was from. Azekah is the area where the Philistines encamped uh, at the time of David's battle uh, with, with Goliath. Now what's interesting is you can see on the topographical map where Bethlehem is, there's a ridge line off to the left and there's a valley that goes between them. And then there is a valley to the right. And so Bethlehem sort of guarded that area to the right. And this area where Shammah was from, Harar, was on that ridge just uh, not too far from Bethlehem. And that sort of guarded the area coming in from the west. Then we get to the next section. You have these uh, three of these chief men who retrieved water for David. Now, this shows David's integrity. This shows that he is concerned about the lives of his men. And so they go to visit David. David we don't know when this happened exactly. David's in the cave of Adullam. And so this could be at the time when Saul was chasing him. We just don't know. It doesn't identify it. And he is there. And the Philistines have taken over uh, Bethlehem. And David is getting a little homesick and he wants a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. And so he just makes this offhand remark, oh, I'd just love to have some of that water from the well in Bethlehem. Now leaders have to be careful what they say because people are going to take it wrong and people who heard him took it wrong. And so these three men said, well, if that's what will make David happy, let's go get it. We'll just surprise him. It'll be a great present. And so they uh, snuck through the lines of the Philistines, and they took water from the well of Bethlehem, which was just inside the gate. And so they had to carry with them all of the uh, sacks and everything that they would fill with water. And they took it back to David, and David doesn't drink it. Why doesn't David drink it? It seems funny to us. David takes the water and he pours it out as an offering to the Lord. And this just seems kind of strange to us. But what's happening is David realizes that that water now has tremendous value. It could have cost the lives of these three great warriors. That's the value of that water. And that is so valuable that David in gratitude that they survived, is going to pour it out as what was called a libation offering to the Lord. And so he just pours it out on the ground. This, this, this is not an act of wastefulness. This is an act of great integrity that he's not going to drink this water. It, it, is, it has been, as it were, sanctified by their willingness to give their lives for it. And so he, he offers it as an offering to the Lord and says in verse 17, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These were the things done by the three mighty men. 
So then we come to the fifth one mentioned. That's Abishai again. Mentioned it. He's the only one mentioned in both of the uh, passages. He's Joab's brother and David's nephew, the leader of the 30, but he doesn't rise up to the level of the first three. And we're told that uh, he's chief of another three, uh, the three leaders of the 30. He lifted his spear against 300 men and killed them. Now, that's a pretty tough warrior to go into battle and over time, he's killed 300. Remember, the first guy on the list killed 800. Not that, this wasn't all at the same time, but it was over a period of time. And so because of his expertise as a, uh, as a warrior with, with a, fighting with a spear, he became their captain. But he doesn't attain to the level of those first three. The sixth one is Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada from Kabzeel. So you know, when they go through this, it's locating that these are real people. They, they, they lived at a particular time in a particular place, and they had particular parents. They're not just sort of something made up. And he had done many deeds, and among them he killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. So these two warriors of Moab that were uh, people didn't think you could defeat him, he did. And he went down, and he also killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. So it's cold, you're stiff, your hands are stiff, and he, he fights this lion. David did that. When David fought Goliath, remember, Saul said, what are your credentials? You're not, you, you've never been in the army. How do we know you can fight? And David said, well, I'm a shepherd, but whenever, and that's the language, it's, it's whenever. It, the English translation make it, makes it sound like it was one incident. One incident's pretty impressive. But he said, whenever a lion or a bear would come into the flock, I would grab them by the beard. Now that's close hand-to-hand combat with a wild animal, with a lion or a bear, and I would kill them. So David was, was, was tough. And the, this guy is tough. Kills a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He doesn't have anywhere to run to. And he also killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man, a man who was a noted warrior. The Egyptian had a spear, so he went down to him with a staff. That's all he had. And he wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and then killed him with his own spear. These guys were tough. And then the last thing we see is the list of the 30. The list of the 30, and it's just a list of their names. But what's interesting is when you go through this, there are some notable names there. There's Ittai the Gittite. Remember, he brings the Carathites and Pelathites out of uh, Jerusalem to go with David as his mercenary troops to protect him when he's uh, fleeing from Absalom. And then there's Eliam, who is Ahithophel's son, Ahithophel. And then um, Bath, uh, Eliam, Bathsheba's father. And, of course, Uriah the Hittite. So these were noted. And this was the cadre that came together around, um, they came together around David when he was out in the wilderness. And I think there's a typology there that just as Jesus Christ was rejected as king, so D- David is rejected by Saul, And he goes into the wilderness, and then he gathers around himself this ragtag bunch 
that is rejected by Saul and rejected by most of Israel. And uh, as he gathers this group of mighty men, uh, this is analogous to what Christ is doing today. He is taking the fools, those who are considered fools by the world, and he is organizing the church, which are his mighty people. And they will come back with him when he comes to reign. And so when David came to reign, he had these mighty men, and they became the cadre around which he developed his entire army. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, uh, we will be that cadre like the mighty men, and we will be the ones who rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. But part of what we have to learn today is what David was learning, is that God was his fortress. God protected him. God watched over him. There were all kinds of chaotic things that happened, but God was always there. And he provided either through intermediate means and sometimes through miraculous means. But God always protects us. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this and be reminded that it's just as true for us as it was for David, that you're our high tower, you are our rock, you are our defense, you're our shield, you are the uh, enormous rock that protects us. And Father, we trust you, you are our deliverer. And Father, we know that in these times, whether we're dealing with a virus or a hurricane or whether we are dealing uh, with those in our country who hate Christians, who hate Christ, and who hate the past, the history of the United States and wish to totally overthrow it and remake a totalitarian state that, that is anti-Christian, we pray that you would and we know that you will protect us and watch over us. And so we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged uh, continually as we remember this. In Christ's name, amen.